welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. How's everybody? You good? Good. We're back in Matthew 24, where we were a couple weeks ago, and we've been working our way through Matthew 24 for several weeks now, and I got an interesting email slash comment from someone who asked me, and it's a friend, so it wasn't a, a negative comment, but he asked me if my approach to Matthew 24, and indeed my approach to the whole book of Matthew, if it couldn't be said of me that I was biased toward Israel in my approach and in my reading of the text. And I suppose if anybody was going to take a contrary position to the approach that I have taken to understanding Matthew, that would be a charge that they would try to level at me, was that I am biased toward Israel in my reading. And there is a reason for that. It's because the Bible is biased toward Israel. And so I'm trying to read it in its biblical context. And when I use the term biblical context, what I'm talking about is historic context. So let me take a few minutes this morning and see if we can kind of place what we've been reading and studying in a historic context and in a broad biblical context for just a moment. Do you know what I mean when I say... Progressive revelation, have you ever heard that term? That's a term that theologians throw around once in a while. And what they mean by it is simply that over the course of human history, God has been presenting himself to people in different ways and to different amounts over the course of time. In other words, we read of like Abraham that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. But in all of Abraham's revelation, the amount of revelation that Abraham had, what he knew of God so far, was that God had promised him a land and that God had promised him descendants and that God had promised that through his descendants they were going to become a great people who were going to go into Egypt. They'd be there for 400 years. They'd come back and God would give them this land as an everlasting inheritance, and God created a covenant with Abraham, who, though he had no children of his own, a covenant that was based on his descendants. That's what Abraham believed. I've told you many times the Hebrew word there is aman. It's the word from which we get amen. He amened God. He listened to what God said to him, and he believed what God said to him despite his circumstances, and God credited his faith for righteousness. Okay, so now, that being the case, we can safely say that Abraham didn't really know the theology of substitutionary sacrifice. Perhaps he got a glimpse of it when he went up to kill his only son, and then God at the last minute stayed his hand just before he plunged the knife into Isaac, and then there was a ram caught in a thicket. And certainly we could argue that the ram with a head in thorns as a substitute for the descendants of Abraham is pretty good typology 
But as far as the actual theology that goes with it and the presentation of the Messiah and the death, burial, and resurrection, that stuff simply isn't developed yet at the time of Abraham. Abraham believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness, but the content of what he believed was what God had shown him so far. Does this make sense? As time goes by, there is more revelation as God continues to reveal himself to his people. When he gives them the law at Mount Sinai, there is certainly a greater revelation of God as he demonstrates his holiness and his righteousness. When he says things like, while I'm on the mountain, nobody can come near, put up a barrier, don't even let an animal come near, because holy God is up on the mountain. Okay, so now we're starting to understand more about the character of God. And then he hands down the law that shows that he is a righteous, holy, just God, but that he's also a God who's willing to punish. Well, okay, Noah might be willing to argue that God is a God who's willing to punish, but now we have a codified law straight from God where he says, do this or here are the curses that I'll pour out on you. Okay, this is a greater knowledge of God straight from God than Abraham had. Does this make sense? Okay, so then over the course of human history and over the course of the Bible, we see these outpourings of God's revelation of himself. In the time of the prophets, God continues to pour out prophetic declarations of God, not only in his dealings with Israel, but ultimately his dealings with the world. But the prophets all, with a single voice, all say the same thing, which is that God is going to punish Israel We've certainly been seeing this on Wednesday nights as we've been working our way through the minor prophets, that God's plan is to push Israel out of their land, put them in captivity, hold them there for a long time, and then ultimately Israel itself is going to be punished by God, and that punishment is going to be worse than any event that ever happened in human history. A time of trouble such as never was, ever would be again. Daniel talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. Jesus steps on the planet, and he talks about it. And they all collectively talk about it as being Israel's punishment because all of the prophets say that it's Israel's punishment. And the reason is not for the destruction or the ultimate scattering of Israel. The purpose of this punishment is to refine Israel and to bring them back to their God because as we saw in Jeremiah 31, God said that as long as there are sun and moon and stars and waves rolling on the sea, that Israel would be a nation before him forever. And so, since they broke that law, he revealed to them that someday there was going to be a new covenant, a different covenant. Isaiah talks about it, and then Jeremiah really lays it out in Jeremiah 31, that since Israel had not achieved righteousness and standing with God through the Sinai covenant, there was going to be a newer covenant, a better covenant. And that covenant then is recited in Hebrews 8, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, again, cites the new covenant that God is going to make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, that's new information. That's information that Moses didn't have. Moses didn't know anything about a new covenant coming later. 
Moses had some hints and certainly talked about the fact that God was going to be faithful to Israel and that God was going to punish Israel. And Moses in the song of Moses even said, now, when you go into the land, you're not going to keep the law and you are going to chase after other gods and God is going to punish you. But he didn't know anything about the new covenant and he didn't know about the, the things that Christ then began revealing when he was on the planet. Christ then tells us that that new covenant is going to be instituted not with animal blood or lamb blood or ox blood. The new covenant is going to be instituted in his own blood. And he says that at the Last Supper when he takes the final glass of wine after dinner and he says, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood, the new covenant. Okay, there's new information again. This is stuff that the, even the prophets didn't foretell that there was going to be a blood covenant in the blood of the Messiah. In fact, what all of the prophets up until then had said and what Israel was expecting was that Messiah was going to come to the planet and that he was going to rule. He was going to establish Israel as a nation. He's going to set up the kingdom that they'd all been waiting for. He's going to throw off the yoke of all their oppressors and punish their oppressors. Okay, all of the prophets have said that, but then Jesus comes to the planet and dies. That's not what they were expecting. But then he raises again and is able to say to them, to two of his disciples just walking on the road, the Emmaus road together, he's able to say to them, isn't this exactly what the prophets predicted? Didn't Christ have to die and rise again? And then starting at Moses and all the prophets, he shows them all the things concerning himself, opens their eyes again, progressive revelation, opens their eyes to the fact that these are the things that had to happen. And so then after his resurrection, he talks to them for 40 days about the kingdom and then just before he leaves the planet, they say to him, are you going to establish the kingdom at this time? And he says, not yet. It's not for you to know. Okay, well, here's a bunch of new information that Messiah, who some of the prophets had predicted and who the prophets all say is going to rule and reign, came to the planet, gave himself, sacrificed himself, and then is leaving for a while. And then is going to come back later to establish the kingdom. That's all going to happen. That's all still good. That's progress. Do you get what I'm saying? Over the course of human history, as God has spoken to different people, groups, through various prophets, he has given us more and more information about what's going to happen. Now, all the way back to Abraham, one of the parts of the Abrahamic covenant is that through his descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And so certainly we could argue that all the families of the earth would include Gentiles. But throughout the Old Testament, it was difficult for the Jews to imagine that the God of Israel, the Redeemer of Israel, was also going to redeem Gentiles. That was such a difficulty that we read about it in the New Testament when we get past the Gospels and into the Epistles, into the book of Acts. We see that Peter, for instance, had a real difficult time with that. And in fact, when he was told to go to the house of Cornelius, God had to first show him that whatever God called clean, Peter was not to call unclean. And he did it by having Peter kill and eat unclean foods. And then, of course, later when Peter and Paul were in uh, Galatia, we read that Paul had to withstand Peter to his face because Peter, when he was with the Gentiles, would sit and eat and talk with the Gentiles. But then some came from James in Jerusalem. And when they got there, we read that Peter dissembled 
acted like he hadn't been sitting with the Gentiles. And then Paul says, I blamed him to his face. I called him out because he was to be blamed for that kind of activity. So what you see in the epistles is this new information, this new revelation of how God, through the new covenant, through the finished work of Christ, is now calling Gentiles in and now establishing his ecclesia, his church. Now, back in like the book of Daniel, we've read things like there is that time of trouble coming and that it's going to be a one-week thing. We read the 70 weeks of Daniel, and we see where 69 of those weeks of years have already been accomplished in history, but there's this week sticking out there somewhere that hasn't been accomplished yet. And then we keep reading these three-and-a-halves and three-and-a-halves in the book of Daniel, In the New Testament, after all of the Acts of the Apostles and the Epistles of Paul and the Epistles to the Churches and stuff, we get the book of Revelation, the last book that was written by an apostle, written somewhere in 92, 96 AD while John is on the Isle of Patmos. And he not only makes reference to Ezekiel, every chapter in the book of Ezekiel is either quoted from or alluded to. And then he also makes all these Daniel-type references, and suddenly we read about these three-and-a-halves again, and we read about the, the little horn again, the beast, we read about the Antichrist stuff again, all these Old Testament things that Daniel talked about, Ezekiel talked about, Jeremiah, the time of trouble. It all gets picked up again in the very last book of the New Testament, the last book written by an apostle in history, goes back and confirms and explains a whole bunch of things that have been laid out much earlier by the prophets in the Old Testament. And so what we know from the Old Testament prophets is things like there's going to be a general resurrection and the resurrection of the good and the evil, and everyone's going to be rewarded accordingly, and they're either going to be punished or they're going to be rewarded with presence in God's presence. And then you get to the book of Revelation, and in Revelation 20, you're told that those two judgments, those two things, are separated by a thousand years. Yes, they still happen, but the resurrection of the the just happens before the thousand years. And the resurrection of all the evil dead, the sea and hell and death give up their dead after the thousand years. Okay, that's new information that has been uh, expressed by John that previous people simply didn't know. They, they just didn't know it. And so even at the time that Paul was writing, he doesn't write anything about the millennium, the thousand years, because that's information John would know later. So I view the Bible. I said all of that to say, that great big sweeping overview of the Bible, that's the way I read the Bible. And when I read any particular book or any particular prophet, or any particular segment of the Bible, I try to place it in its historic place in order of development. And by the time the book of Matthew is written, and the things that he is writing about concerning the Jewish Messiah coming to Israel, that has a long, rich, complex history behind it that Matthew knows and that his listeners know, that his readers know. The audience that Jesus spoke to knew all that Old Testament stuff, but they didn't know anything that Paul was going to say later that hadn't come up yet. They didn't know anything about the book of Revelation yet that hadn't come up yet. And so 
If I am reading Matthew with a quote-unquote Israel bias, it's because in the historic development of God's revelation of himself to people on planet Earth, his concentration has been Israel up until this moment in history. So the idea that Jesus in like Matthew 24 and 25, that Jesus is talking about things that Paul would later reveal doesn't make sense to me. We have a a tendency in the 21st century church to conflate the Bible, take the whole of the Bible, press it together, and assume that Abraham was familiar with John's revelation. And we start reading the Old Testament through these New Testament lenses. and, And there is some value to recognizing how the New Testament authors handled the Old Testament. But what you can't do is say these Old Testament passages or these gospel passages or these prophetic passages have only to do with the church to the exclusion of Israel. And that is what happens far, far too often is that people take like Matthew 24 and say church, it's all church. This has to be about the church. It's only about the church. And so I'm just trying to counter some of that and say, no, not really. Historically, no. Historically, it really is about Israel. The emphasis is on Israel, and the history is on the side of Israel. And so we can't take later revelation and impose it on the passage. Does that make sense? Am I alone up here? Yes? Thank you. Wait, let me check. Yeah, I'm alone up here. We got as far as Matthew 24, 42. And at this point, Jesus begins handing out warnings again about the suddenness of his return. We saw a bit of that last week when he talked about two men in a field. One's going to be taken, the other's left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One's taken, the other's left. We went over to the book of Luke. We looked at Luke 17, 37, and there the apostles asked him, where, where are they taken? And his response is, wherever the corpses are, that's where the vultures are going to be gathered. And so this is the beginning of warning them that there is going to be a sudden arrival. And so he's going to begin saying to his listeners, his readers, this audience, he's going to begin saying, watch, be careful. But he has also told them, you'll know when it's close. You'll know when it's even at the door. The same way that you can look at a fig tree and when you see it has leaves, you know that it's going to produce fruit. And so you know that spring is near. So when you see these things beginning to come to pass, he's going to say, look up because your redemption is drawing close. Now, that is a verse that the church has adopted to itself and made it into a rapture verse, and they say, you know, when you see all the bad stuff happening, look up, because Jesus is coming to get us, and that's the redemption of the church. He's coming to... Contextually, it's not what he's saying. One of the most consistent themes in the Bible is that God is the redeemer of Israel, and we're going to look at that To some extent this morning, we're going to hand out a whole bunch of verses and a whole lot of you are going to get a chance to read this morning. So I hope you're looking forward to that because we're going to see time and time again 
the consistency of what the prophets say about God as Redeemer and that he is the Redeemer of Israel. And by the way, that is said before and after the cross. Jesus is identified as the Redeemer of Israel. And so I am convinced that what Jesus was saying was the redemption of Israel is coming because that's what all the Old Testament prophets say, that this time of trouble is coming, the time of persecution, and the purpose of it is for the refining of Israel and the ultimate redemption of Israel. And so once Jesus has said all these terrible things are coming, but this Ganea, this generation won't pass until it's all accomplished. And when you see these things come to pass, look up because the redemption of Israel is finally drawing close. I'm convinced that's what Jesus meant. I'm out to prove it to you this morning. Got the game plan? Yes. That was all introduction. Verse 42 of Matthew 24, therefore be on the alert. For you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now, this should also resonate with you because Paul does learn that from Jesus and does pick that up thematically. And when writing to the Thessalonians, he does talk about the day of the Lord. And that's why he describes the day of the Lord as thief in the night. It's coming on them suddenly, sudden destruction. And that's why Jesus brought up things like Noah that the people were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until the moment that the rain started and then washed them all away. They didn't see that coming. Or Sodom and Gomorrah, where they were busy buying and selling and trading and marrying, giving in marriage, looking forward to the future. And as soon as Lot and his family were out, sudden destruction fell on Sodom. And so he uses those two examples to say, when I come back, it's going to be like that. It's going to be so sudden and so destructive, but you need to watch. Now, Paul makes the same kind of differentiation when writing to the Thessalonians. He says it's going to come on them as a thief in the night, but then he says, but it's not going to come on you like a thief in the night because you're not of the night. You're of the day. And so Paul differentiates between the world that is going to fall under the curse and destruction of God and the church, the Christians, who because they are already washed in the blood of Christ, because they are already secured by the finished work of Christ, the punishment, the wrath of God cannot fall on them again because it already fell on Christ. So if the wrath of God has already been satisfied in Christ on your behalf, then you don't have to endure the wrath of God, which is why Paul would then write, because we are not appointed to wrath. Well, Jesus is about to do the same thing. Talking to his Jewish audience, he says, be aware and watch. And then he says, because some of you are going to escape. Be ready to escape. Be prepared to escape. And he's not talking rapture. He's already told them where to escape. You know, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, then flee into the wilderness. And Daniel tells them where to flee. Ammon, Moab, another one, Edom. Edom, thank you. Those three places, Daniel says, the little horn isn't going to get to. So there's a safe place in the wilderness that you can get to. So get ready to flee, and then you will escape the persecutions that happened there in Israel. All right, I keep introducing. Let's, let's, let's read. 
verse 42, therefore be on the alert for you do not know which day your Lord is coming, but be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. It would be really, really helpful if people who were about to do a home invasion would call ahead of time and say, 3.40 in the a.m., we're hitting your house. Because then you would know. You'd be on the porch with a weapon. You'd have already called the police. You would protect your house from being broken in. And so that's the example Jesus uses. He said that's the kind of alertness you have to have. If you knew what time they were coming, well, then you'd be prepared at that time. But since you don't know what time they're coming, be constantly on alert. Since you don't know what time your Lord is coming back, and since his return is going to be a return in judgment, since his return is going to be a judgment on Israel, then the time of Jacob's trouble starts, time of trouble such as never was, ever will be again, well then be alert, be ready, because some of you are going to know enough to flee. Verse 44, for this reason... You be ready too, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Does anybody here know Frederick Casey Price? Have you ever seen this guy on TV? You know Fred Price? Ever-increasing faith with Frederick Casey Price. Now his son is doing most of the preaching. I heard him one time. I'm calling his name because I heard him say it. I heard him on... TV, I'm sure it's still out there on the internet somewhere. He believed that this return of the Son of Man in verse 44 was returning to come get the church. This was a rapture verse. And so he said that we all needed to stop thinking about the rapture. We all needed to stop thinking about the return of Christ. We all needed to stop worrying about when he was going to come back because he told us he's not coming back as long as we think he's coming back. <laughs> And so we need to stop thinking about him coming back, and then he'll come back. Because after all, be ready, because the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you don't think he's coming. So stop thinking he's coming, and when the church stops thinking he's coming, he's going to come get the church. Okay, that's how not to do exegesis. That's how you don't handle a verse. Contextually, Jesus is telling his Jewish audience, his Israelite audience, that this time of trouble is coming at a time when they're not prepared, when they don't think it. They're going to be just like Sodom. They're going to be just like the people in the time of Noah. They're going to be busy doing their thing, looking forward to the future, and then sudden destruction. That's the context. So be ready, he tells them, because at a time when you don't think it, that's when the Son of Man is coming back. And then he uses a, a parable, an example that he uses several times in the uh, Gospels. He sets up the scenario of the master and the servants, and that the master owns the vineyard, the master owns the land, and then he, he puts servants on the land to do the work, and they're supposed to be faithful to do the work so that when he returns, there is fruit to give him. Well, he brings that up again, that same scenario in verse 45, and says, Who then is the faithful and the sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? 
Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So now he's added faithfulness to watchfulness. Watch because you don't know when. And the way that you can watch is to faithfully do the things I left you here to do. And how blessed will you be if I come back and find you doing what I said you were supposed to be doing? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he, the master, will put him, the servant, in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with the drunkards. Well, then the master of that slave will come at a day when he does not expect him and at an hour that he does not know and he shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. Judgment. So he's saying, when I return, I'm either going to find you being faithful, in which case I'll put you in charge of everything I have, or I will punish you and punish you bad. That language of weeping, gnashing of teeth is the same language he uses to describe things like outer darkness, where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this section of Matthew 24 is recited as well over in Luke. Now, over in the book of Luke, Luke takes portions of Matthew 24, and you can read about it in Luke 17. But there are other portions of Matthew 24 that you find in Luke 21, because as I've said a couple of times as we've gone through the book of Matthew, Matthew has a tendency to take the sayings of Jesus and kind of put them all together, like he did at the Sermon on the Mount, where he took a lot of different things that Jesus said, kind of pushed them all together. Same thing with Matthew 24. A lot of concepts and things that Jesus taught are pushed into chapter 24 and 25. Luke puts them into a more historic sequence, but it's the same thing. It's the same teaching with a couple of really important additions. So turn to Luke 21. We're not coming back to Matthew 24 this morning, so you don't need to keep your place there. But go to Luke 21. I'm interested in what he has to say after verse 25, but we're going to start reading at verse 10 for context so that you can see that it's the same thing that Matthew 24 was teaching. He continued saying to them, Nation is going to rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes. And in various places, there will be plagues and famines. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and they'll persecute you, delivering you to the synagogues and the prisons, bringing you before kings and governors for my name's sake. It will lead to an opportunity for your testimony. So make up your mind not to prepare beforehand to defend yourselves, for I will give you utterance and wisdom which none of your opponents will be able to resist or refute. But you will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death, and you will be hated by all on account of my name. And yet not a hair of your head will perish. 
by your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is at hand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart, and let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, in order that all things which are written may be fulfilled. Okay, that's a really important phrase. What is Jesus talking about when he says, these are days of vengeance, that are happening so that everything that's already been written is going to be fulfilled. Well, that forces you back into the Old Testament. That's all the stuff that's been written. And what is all the stuff that's been written? Well, all the stuff we've been looking at on Wednesday nights, that the prophets all say that God is going to specifically punish Israel and that the purpose for that punishment is their ultimate restoration. And so when Jesus says this, he's not saying anything that the prophets haven't already said. He's not saying anything that his listeners couldn't be familiar with. He's telling them everything that's already written has to happen. And the things that are written are things like time of trouble, such as never was, ever would be again, time of Jacob's trouble, all that seven-year stuff, the, the Daniel prophecy, the little horn, the, the way that the nations are going to surround Israel, and there's going to be the ultimate conflagration and the Armageddon and all that kind of stuff. That's already stuff that is written in the Old Testament. Therefore, what he's telling them is simply a confirmation that what God has already told them through the prophets is still going to happen. What's really important about understanding that is, in the big theological context, is that Jesus is confirming not only the punishment of Israel, but the restoration of Israel. Everything that the prophets have said concerning Israel has to happen. And it has Jesus' stamp and seal on it. It has Jesus' confirmation on it. And that's why I look at the Bible through an Israel bias. Because Old or New Testament, whatever you read, wherever you read, there is always this concentration on Israel. So let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are in the midst of the city depart. Let not those who are in the country enter the city, because these are the days of vengeance, in order that all the things which are written may be fulfilled. Verse 23, woe to those that are with child, and to those who nurse babies in those days, for there will be great distress upon the land, and wrath, what's the next word? To who? To these people. Who's that? It's Israel. He's being real specific here. You're going to see Judea, Jerusalem, surrounded, and this is God pouring out wrath on these people. Exactly and precisely like the prophets have already said. And so he could say, just like it's written. You get that? Mm -hmm. For there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. He's talking about the land. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about this people. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations, into the Gentiles, into the Goyim. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. 
Isn't that interesting? Now Jesus has said, and there is a limited allotted time during which the Gentiles will be allowed to inhabit Jerusalem. And then when the times are over, well, then Jesus comes back, two-edged sword out of his mouth, Armageddon, blood to the bridles of the horses, all that stuff still happens. And then set up the kingdom and establish Israel and keep every single promise that all the prophets have said. But it's all Israel-centric. It's all happening in Jerusalem. It's all about Israel. It's all about this people. It's all obviously uh, not about the Gentiles because he's talking about the Gentiles invading and the times of the Gentiles. And by the way, Paul picks up very similar language in Romans 11 and says that after the fullness of the Gentiles are come in, then all Israel will be saved. So God still is making a distinction pre-cross, post-cross, still differentiating between Israel and Gentiles. God is still biased toward Israel. That's my point. Do you see it? Verse 25, which is where I was trying to get. And there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and upon the earth dismay among the nations in perplexity at the roaring of the sea and of the waves. Men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in a cloud with power and with great glory. That's a direct reference, by the way, to Daniel 7, 13, that the Son of Man is coming back in power on the clouds of glory. So he's confirming that not only is the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel going to happen, and he's confirming not only the 70th week thing, because there's a limited time during which the Gentiles are able to overrun Jerusalem, but he's also confirming that just like Daniel saw and foretold, the Son of Man is coming back on clouds of glory. And we know from the book of Revelation that everybody who's left on the planet, great and small, free and bond, powerful and powerless, all run for the caves and the dens of the earth and say to the rocks, fall on us, hide us from him that sits on the throne and the wrath of the lamb. So this is his return in final judgment. Verse 28. But when these things begin to take place, remember he's told them, you can, you can read the fig tree, you can read the signs, you know when it's getting close. Because these signs are going to happen. When you see these signs, you know it's coming close. He tells them, when you see these things begin to take place, straighten up, says the NASB, lift your heads, because your redemption is drawing close. Okay, what's the King James say? Look up, for your redemption draws nigh. Okay, so what is he talking about there? I am convinced that what he's talking about is the Messiah of Israel is coming back now to judge the nations and the Gentiles in order to accomplish everything the Old Testament has said about the ultimate redemption of Israel. Look up, you Israelites I'm talking to. When you see these things happening, look up because your redemption is drawing close. You ready to read verses? Exodus 15, 13. Tom, that's you. Wolf, you want to read? Deuteronomy 7, 8. Micah, you want to read? 
Deuteronomy 15, 15. April, do you have a Bible too? You want to read? You're also in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 21, 8. Jeff, you got a Bible? Deuteronomy 24, 18. Leon. Isaiah 41, 14. Who else wants to read? George, you want to read something? Sure. You're also in Isaiah 43, 14. Conrad, you want to read Isaiah 44, 6. Marilyn, you want to read something? Sure. Isaiah 49, 7. And you know what? Then we're going to have you skip down and read Isaiah 49, 6, too, since you're in Isaiah 49. I got two more. Who else? You want to read Thaddeus? You're going to read Isaiah 54, 5. Christian is then going to top it all off with Isaiah 59, 20. And then I've got one more. All the way in the back. Alex, you get the big ta-da moment. You get Luke 24, 21. And I expect after you read it for you to go ta-da. Okay. Okay, what's the point of all these verses? A few weeks ago, we started reading verses until Jamie ended up saying, I sense a theme developing here. And it's going to be the same thing. You're going to hear repetition here from the prophets in the Old Testament who are all going to say that God is the Redeemer of Israel. That's the point of all these verses. And trust me when I tell you I had many, many more. I culled them down to the few what I considered most obvious examples. Now, you have to understand what the word redemption means and how it's used in the Old Testament. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, he said that he redeemed his people out of Egypt. The word redemption, didn't we just hear about it? The word redemption means to buy, to purchase. Uh, how many of you remember S&H green stamps? That's the example I like most because my mom, really, George, you were right in there. Um, my mom was really into S&H green stamps. And so as a kid, she had books and books of stamps. And it was our job as kids to lick and stick stamps in those books until your tongue would just get gluey. And, and so we used to have books and books of S&H green stamps. And it was a lot of fun the day that mom would put us all in the car and we would go get something. And the place where you would go get something is called the the redemption center. It's the exact same concept. You would take the price that you had in your hands, which was all your stamps, and then you would go and redeem yourself a toaster or a lamp or whatever it was that you found in the redemption center that you wanted. And you could walk out with that and it belonged to you because you had redeemed it out of the store with your stamps, which was the sufficient price to redeem it. Exact same concept in the Bible. Jesus had sufficient price in order to redeem his people, buy them off the slave market of sin, and then take them to himself because he had paid the redemption price. Okay, so in the Old Testament, same idea. God goes into Egypt and he redeems out his people. And then that concept of redemption continues working its way through the Bible until the ultimate redemption, Christ dying at Calvary. You got all that? Yes, sir. Okay, so Exodus 15, 13 says what, Tom? 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Okay, so that's Moses talking about the fact that God has redeemed Israel out of Egypt and led them first to Mount Sinai, 40 more years, ultimately to the promised land. But he redeemed the people that he loved. He is the redeemer of Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 8. I give that to you, Wolf? Yes. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And in my notes I have El Allah, which is God is faithful. Yeah. So God is faithful to the people that he loves and he took them by a mighty hand away from Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and he calls that being redeemed. Deuteronomy 15.15, is that you, Micah? It is. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this day, it shall come about, if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he fares well with you. Okay, now notice the combinations of love and faithfulness and redemption. Why did he redeem Israel? Because they belong to him. Why did he redeem them? Because he loves them and because he's faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in the Abrahamic covenant, he said, they're going to be 400 years in Egypt and I'm going to deliver them with a mighty hand. And he did that because he's faithful to his own word and so he redeemed Israel. Deuteronomy 21, 8, April Forgive your people, Israel, whom you have redeemed, O Lord, and do not place the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people, Israel, and the blood of guiltiness shall be forgiven them. Now he's added another element to it. It's not just love and faithfulness. Now it's forgiveness. Forgive your people. Which people? The people you've redeemed. Why did you redeem them? Because you love them. Why do you love them? Because they're yours. All of those concepts of love and faithfulness and forgiveness are all part and parcel of this redemption language. Deuteronomy 24:18 is that you, Jeff? But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. So now be obedient, be faithful, do what I tell you to do because I did redeem you because you are my people. Okay, so now we're going to shift a little bit. All of those verses referred to the people as redeemed people. Now the verses in Isaiah we're going to look at all refer to God as redeemer, giving God the positive credit for being the one who redeems Israel. Isaiah 41, 14. Is that you, Leon? Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you declares the Lord, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Okay, now they really need redemption, because he starts out with, you worm, Jacob. <laughs> he reminds them of who they are. You're just worms. There's no good, positive value in you. There's no holiness, no righteousness. But I'm going to take care of you, because I am your Redeemer. Okay, so this becomes positive nomenclature. This is a name God is willing to wear. I am the redeemer of Israel. And I can do it even though you're just a worm. And by the way, aren't you glad to know that? Yes. 
that God is in the activity of redeeming worms? Yes, sir. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Isaiah 43, 14. Conrad? No, it's me. It's you, George. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, for your sake I will send to Babylon and break down all the bars, and the shouting of the Chaldeans will be turned to lamentations. God speaking to Israel identifies himself specifically as I'm the Lord, your Redeemer, the Redeemer of Israel. Are you beginning to get a feel for this? I, I'm just showing you through repetition that this is a positive name that God wears for himself. I am the Redeemer of Israel. There's no enemy that's too strong for me to take care of. Yes, not only is there no enemy and no problem that he can't overcome, and not only is he capable of forgiving them, the point is that he could have simply said, I as God who have a quality of redeeming am willing to redeem even you, but no, he gives himself the positive name, Redeemer of Israel, is my point. That's the relationship he has with Israel. So now, Conrad, what are you, uh, Isaiah 44, 6? All right. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. I'm going to have you read that one more time. Okay. For one specific reason, listen to the number of names God gives himself here. Well, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel. King of Israel, there's one of them. What's the next one? And his Redeemer. Redeemer of Israel. Keep going. I am the first and First and last, that's something Jesus picks up later and says, I'm the Alpha, I'm the Omega. You'll find that in Revelation 1. Keep going. And there is no God besides me. And there's no God besides me. So in between all his descriptors of himself, he includes, I'm Israel's Redeemer. This is revelation of who God is, what God's like, and what God's about. He's not Redeemer of Israel. He's lying. <laughs> so if he's not the Redeemer of Israel, he's lying. Now, and lying over and over. Isaiah 49, 7. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who has dis was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. The king will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down, because the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Okay, now I'm going to have you read that yet again, because I want everybody to hear this. Listen very carefully to what God is saying here, because he's giving himself, again, positive descriptors that we're all real familiar with, and in the midst of it, Redeemer of Israel. Go ahead. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Okay, hold on one second. I'm going to have you read some more in a moment. But just like what Leon read about the fact that they were worms, Jacob is a worm, but that's okay, I'm a redeemer. Same thing here. I'm the holy one and the redeemer of Israel, and you're no good at all. But that's okay, you're going to be okay because I'm your redeemer. Go ahead. Kings will see you and rise up. Princes will see and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. And the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So why is he going to redeem them? Why is he going to forgive them? Why are you sitting down? You have another verse to read. Uh, <laughs> and then she'll rise up again. But again, do you hear the language? 
So all I want is for you to be familiar with the language. 49.26 is another verse that I was asking you to read, if it's okay. Yeah. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh. They will be drunk on their own blood, as is wine. Then all mankind will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior, your Redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. So I will make your enemies eat their own flesh and drink their own blood to prove to the world that I am the redeemer of Jacob. Do you hear the preferential treatment there? I'm so in... You're going to say pro-Israel? It feels pro-Israel, doesn't it? A little bias, do you think? Do you see now why when I got the email that said... You read the Bible in kind of a pro-Israel way. It was like, um, um, yeah, because it, because it is. Uh, Isaiah fifty-four five. Where did that end up? Right here. Nice and loud, Thaddeus. For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth, He is called. So, what do you need to know? The God of the whole earth. Is your maker and your redeemer. And your husband. And your husband. Okay, so how intimate is the relationship? Uh, 59.20. This is interesting now. This is Isaiah 59.20, and it's messianic in character. It's going to now take this concept of God as redeemer of Israel and point it toward the Messiah as being the redeemer of Israel. Isaiah 59.20. Is that you, Christian? Stand up and read loud. Everybody else had to. A redeemer will come to Zion, and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. Okay, so a redeemer is going to come to Zion. Now, he's talking messianically that Jesus is the one who is going to come to be the redeemer of Israel. You're going to have to come all the way up here. Come on, Alex. Now, this is important. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. This is Jesus talking to his two apostles after the death, burial, and resurrection. Ta-da. And he's walking with them on the Emmaus Road, and he's asking them what's going on. And they say, are you a stranger here that you don't know what's going on? And then they describe the Messiah, and they say, We believed it was he that would be the redeemer of Israel. What was their expectation? Their expectation was still the redemption of Israel, which is exactly and precisely why the selfsame apostles would later ask questions like, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They didn't say that in a vacuum. That didn't just come out of nowhere. That comes out of the fact that the God they know, the God they worship, the God that chose them identifies himself as the redeemer of Israel. And the prophets have all said the time is coming, the day is coming when he is going to reestablish Israel. And they know that it's going to include a time of trouble and a time of purging and a time of refinement. And then the Messiah is on the planet and the Messiah is the redeemer of Israel. And then he doesn't do it he dies and then for where are you you exactly 
He's rising up off the planet after the resurrection. Just think about it for just a moment. Because once he's resurrected, best king ever. You can't kill our king. And, and we're looking forward to a kingdom where he's going to rule over all the nations of the earth. He's it. He's the one. 40 days of talking about the kingdom. And of course they're going, now? You can do that now? Come on, man. You're the best. Do it. And he says to them, not yet. Why? Because God has this other plan that includes the times of the Gentiles. So once Jesus leaves the planet, then you get into the book of Acts and you see the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ becoming the primary preachment. And that is going out, according to Jesus, to all people, go tell everybody, go out to the nations, go to the Gentiles, tell every living creature the gospel. And then nations are opened up and Gentiles are brought in. And over the book of Acts, you see that transition in the first century of Gentiles being brought into the church. And you see Paul in his travels with Titus or with Luke or Barnabas, you see him going into these various areas, and he would start by preaching in the temples, in the tabernacles, in the synagogues, because as he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Gentile. There's the new part, but also to the Gentiles. And so he would go and he would preach to the Jews, and then they would reject it. And then he would go out and he would preach it to the Gentiles. And he's out there establishing Gentile churches. But he also has to write to the Romans, for instance, and say to them, now don't boast against the natural branches, because God cut them off for your sake. But he's going to plant them back in again. He can graft them. If he could graft you in and you're wild... How much easier can he graft in the natural branches? And so after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. And then he identifies all Israel and says specifically, now as touching the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, you Gentiles. But as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sakes. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all those promises, all those covenants that he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the sure guarantee that the Redeemer of Israel has not changed his mind, has not changed his intention. He is still the Redeemer of Israel, but right now he's dealing with the Gentiles. He's dealing with the church. But there is a time when the times of the Gentiles are going to be closed up, and at that time he's going to return his attention to Israel, and then he is going to pour out that wrath that he said he is going to pour out and Christ is going to come back and he's going to judge the nations and he's going to set up the kingdom that is going to be an earthly kingdom just like all the previous earthly kingdoms that his kingdom destroys and then that kingdom is going to last according to the book of Revelation the last revelation that we have it's going to last for a thousand years on planet earth and that gives us the key to be able to go back and read stuff in the Old Testament and go oh well then this has to be what he's talking about when people are going to beat their weapons into plowshares and there's going to be no more war in his holy mountain and nothing's going to hurt or harm in all his holy mountain. Oh, I see when that's going to happen. But we only understand that because of the later revelation and the progress of God telling us what it is he plans to do. But it all fits together. It all fits together in one great big mosaic. And when you step back from it and look at it all, you can see that it really is 
God's dealings with his chosen people, his elect Israel, and everything else that's happening in human history has to do with the fact that God is remaining faithful because he is the redeemer of Israel. And we, the church, the Gentiles that are brought to Christ through the new covenant, we're just the recipients of an astounding grace. But the fact that we have been called to Christ in no way negates or changes the fact that the Redeemer of Israel is still in the enterprise of redeeming Israel. Do you get it? Yes. Do you understand that? Yes. So we're living in the time of the Gentiles. We sure are. And the signs that they talk about relate. But what should we, we be watchful for? If my understanding of the timing of the catching away of the church is correct, I believe that once God, again, the language Paul uses, the same Paul who tells us about the catching away of the church, talks about the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. There's a definite number. If God has elected people for salvation, then he knows how many that is, and he knows who they are. And once that definite number is done, that's when I believe he takes the church to himself the bride of Christ, because at the same time, if you go to Revelation 19, at the same time that all this trouble is happening on earth, marriage supper of the Lamb is happening in heaven. And I have to assume that the bride of Christ is at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so she has to... preceding that that we are to be watchful of? I don't believe so. That's what I was... Yeah, there is a concept, a theological concept called imminence. And all that means is that the church has the anticipation, looking forward to Christ. I can't find anything in the Bible that says the Gentile church in America is looking for a definite succession of signs that will happen before the church is caught away. I don't see that. And so, and you hear people or media things in the media about uh, earthquakes and you know that. Kind of, so they're mis misquoting all that. Yeah, well, the earthquakes, the wars, the rumors of war, all that kind of stuff, according to Jesus, he said those are early birth pangs, but the end's not yet. And so it's building, certainly, it's pointing, but as far as knowing the exact moment when Christ is going to come and get his church, I am convinced that could happen at any time. And I'm convinced of that for a lot of reasons that we won't get into at the moment, but that includes the Daniel prophecies. If the church is here, we will certainly recognize the seven-year pact with Israel. And so I don't believe we can be here when that happens. Uh, if we're here much longer, we would have to take the mark of the beast. If we take the mark of the beast, we end up in the lake of fire. If we don't take the mark of the beast, our heads are cut off. So the only options for the church, once that's established, is dead or not Christian. So then who is Christ coming back to get? So I'm convinced the gathering of the church must be before that. There are certainly indications of it must be before this and before this, but I don't see anything that says it happens right after this. And so I believe that the catching away of the church could happen now is good. I'd be happy to go now, but yeah. darn. Think how dramatic that would have been if, if right at that... Just he was waiting on me to say that, and turns out he was. Another hand, yes. I get confused on the terms appearing and return. Mm -hmm. Here's what we have to be careful of, and this 
this happens in some theologies, is that they use the language of Christ's appearance as like a technical term. And so then they start arguing about, is there more than one appearance of Christ? And there can only be one appearance of Christ. But the Bible doesn't use it that way. It doesn't use it as a technical term. It simply says that there are, there's an appearance to the church. There is a return for the church. There, there is an appearance of Christ in judgment. There's a return of Christ to the planet. So I don't think that we need to use those kind of activity so statements. Are there two returns, then? The return, ah, I see what you're saying. And then the return Good. Good. Right. I get that question every once in a while, and I'm glad you brought it up. People say, well, then how many second comings are there? Right. The answer to that question is, how many first comings were there? Because what we consider his first coming actually has multiple, multiple appearances. Not only was he a baby in the manger... But then after the death, burial, and resurrection, he appeared on the seashore at Galilee, and he was making fish. And then he appeared when they were all in a locked room, and he said, here, touch my side. And then he appeared to Paul on the Damascus Road. And then he appeared to John 60 years after his death, burial, and resurrection on the Isle of Patmos. So... Do I have a problem with the idea of him appearing to get his church and then appearing in judgment three and a half or seven years later? No, not at all. And those are all what I consider the second coming because the first coming had multiple appearances. So I have no qualm at all with the idea that his return could include multiple appearances. He's already established that. Does that make sense? You're nodding a lot as I'm saying it, so I knew it. Yeah. Plus, he appeared in the Old Testament as Christophanes. Absolutely, as Christophanes. Those kinds of arguments, the, you know, well, it's not a secret rapture because it's really noisy, you know, and there's a trumpet, and there's a shout, there's a, or the argument, you know, how many second comings are there? And so these are arguments that, that I've never been impressed by because they don't really deal with the text. They're just designed to create controversy or to argue against the idea of Christ returning. You know, if you're a millennial or something, you're going to pull up those kind of arguments, which perhaps on the surface sound like there's some meat to them, and there just isn't. Once you peel away the layers, there's nothing there. Are the two Greek terms different, appearing and return? Yeah. But that doesn't matter. They're not technical terms. Did I see another hand? Yeah. The question I understand is it's phenomenal as far as the redeeming of Israel. It takes the name and all when we first started that discussion, comparing stamps, redeeming, the price that is paid, understand Christ right. pays our redemption price, and then we are his. I'm not sure. I get a little confused on he redeemed them from Egypt. What price was paid for there? It almost sounded like the Egyptians paid the price through their suffering. What did they know about? But Christ is the re- redeeming them from that. Right. Who's the purchaser and what's the price? Right. Ultimately, I think the price for redemption is always the finished work of Christ. And I think God, who is not worried about time, always knew that Christ was the price that would be paid for his people because Christ is ultimately called the Redeemer of Israel. I think that all positive redemption, just like all the forgiveness, we read that verse, 
All of that is a result of the fact that God knows that he is going to extract a price from his son who is the ultimate redeemer. I think that's a lot of the reason why when Christ comes back, his feet touch the Mount of Olives, all that stuff. Zechariah says that Israel looks on him whom they pierced, which means he has to be appearing to the same people who killed him. And they look on him whom they pierced and they weep like a mother over her only child. God places a new spirit in them, places a new heart in them, gives them a new covenant, and that new covenant is in the the blood of Christ. He himself says it. So if the new covenant that's promised to Israel, the house of Israel, the house of Judah, is based in his blood, which he says at the Last Supper, then I think we have a theological basis for saying the redemption of Israel is in the new covenant blood of Christ. Other than that, I got nothing for you. That, that's as close as I got. Yeah. Nobody disputes that price. The devil, there's no. Yeah, how do you dispute there's no that? Objection to that? Yeah. Do you get the Redeemer of Israel thing? Yes, sir. If you walk out with nothing else, I hope that's firmly planted in your brain. And that becomes a lens through which you can read the scripture. Say goodbye to the digital congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org and join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace. <laughs>